Well, this is Current Yield, Grant's interest rate observer of the air. And uh, I'm Jim Grant. And uh, with me, as always, is the uh, great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. Good morning, Evan. Good morning, Jim. And uh, Henry French, as per usual, at the, uh, at the dials. And uh, we have a guest today, and he is none other than Jonathan Litt, who is the founder and chief investment officer of Land and Buildings, which, as you might conjecture, has something to do with real estate, which is the topic of the, uh, of the day here at Grant's. And uh, besides, of course, interest rates. Interest rates, ladies and gentlemen, are our middle name here at Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Evan, I've been waiting, uh, let's see, uh, 10, 20, 30, uh, 40, yeah, 40 years for a proper bond bear market. And I'm not going to pin you down and say, is this it? Because as you know, um, we have had several, uh, should we say, not especially well-timed explorations of the possibility that this is the new bond bear market. But uh, I'm looking at some of these graphs of the two-year and three-year note and watching them go straight up. And I'm thinking, wasn't this what Grant's interest rate observer was made to observe? It's certainly nice to have interest rates you can observe without a magnifying glass. I know. You know, I, I meant before we start, I meant to ask someone who can work a Bloomberg terminal. Not that I can't. It's just that uh, it's unfamiliar. I've given that up. But uh, just what is the population of uh, securities these days yielding less than zero in nominal terms? As long as recently as what, 2020, it was like $18 trillion worth, $18 trillion worth of bonds, notes, and bills priced to yield less than nothing, which I thought at the time and still think is one of the greatest compliments ever paid to the world's central banking fraternity and sorority to think that people would, here, uh, I'm going to invest in the full knowledge that I'm getting less than nothing because I have such confidence in the capacity of you, doctors of economics, to depreciate the currency in which I am uh, choosing to uh, uh, to invest my life savings. Yeah, here, take it and uh, go and shred it. What, is it. what are you thinking about? Evan, can you, can you tell us how many securities are priced to yield less than nothing? If you were in a convenient um, terminal location, I'm actually just pulling up on Bloomberg right now. As we're speaking, there are currently 2.5 trillion worth of uh, negative yielding securities, but that's as of yesterday's close. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Jonathan Litt, good morning. And uh, good morning. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah. Well, it is our pleasure and uh, privilege. Uh, Jonathan, tell us if you would be. Am I correct in um, in guessing uh, that land and buildings is a real estate um, oriented uh, enterprise? You would be correct. Uh. <laughs> I, well, I actually, I knew that, and Evan knew it full well. I know you two have talked before, and you've been very helpful to Grants. So tell us a little bit about how, this is kind of a cosmic question, but um, uh, you see the, uh, I dare say, as many as 360 degrees worth of the real estate uh, world. Um, what ought the non-real estate specialist ought to know about the opportunities in real estate, commercial real estate, particularly today? Yeah, sure. Maybe just a quick background. Um, I've been investing in real estate and in particular publicly traded real estate uh, since the late 80s. Spent a large part of my career on the sell side as a global property strategist and the U.S. property analyst. Uh, so we had um, a lot of time in the market during this bull market in bonds and looked at all categories of real estate as an analyst and, and today at Land and Buildings, where we invest in the last 13 years in uh, publicly traded real estate stocks, including REITs. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, the landscape of a rising rate environment uh, such as we have today uh, is one which is going to impact 
depending upon the move and the extent of the move, really the valuations of, of all yes. uh, yeah. investments. In, in the real estate world, people talk about cap rates. And of course, cap rates are, are kind of interest rates uh, spelled alternatively. Tell us about what a cap rate is and how cap rates are moving in the context of this really quite violent updraft in uh, bond yields. Sure. You know, it, it is interesting. Cap rates are the yield that you earn in the first year of owning the real estate that you buy. So you buy something for a dollar, you get a 5% yield. Uh, and so that's what a cap rate is. It's not dissimilar from a multiple that we talk about on the S&P 500, but it's the inverse. So uh, a 5% yield would be a 20 multiple. But for example, if you were looking at a traditional non-REIT equity security. Cap rates have been uh, proverbially and persistently uh, low in the context of very, very low um, interest rates on bonds and the like. And uh, what has happened uh, to cap rate? I, I dare say they don't, uh, because they're not quoted in the Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal every day, they are not necessarily fast movers, but they do trend. And uh, what has been the trend in cap rates over the say, past year or so? Is it uh, something that is uh, visible? Is it something that is uh, affording both opportunities or uh, costing them money? What's what's happening to cap rates? So I would take pre-2022 and then 2022 and, and, and separate them. It, you know, once the Fed, you know, dropped rates and started the massive quantitative easing and we had the fiscal policy stimulus, um, we saw the cap rates or the yield on real estate drop fairly dramatically. So the multiple going up. And we saw that a bit in 20 and more so in 2021, not dissimilar to the multiple expansion we saw on the S&P 500. Um, this year, with the rise in rates, we have seen the REITs uh, fall as much as uh, 10 to 15%. And I'm, you, know, you, you bring up an interesting point, right? We, we don't have like a ticker on the screen that says what's happening in the private market. We have a ticker on the screen that says what's happening to the public real estate stock that own the real estate. And you know, sometimes the market public REITs will over or underreact, but um, what we saw um, as, as the Fed uh, commenced its interest rate rise, quantitative tightening discussions was that, uh, jawboning, I should say, uh, was that um, the, the real estate stock came under pressure down about 10 or 15% at the low. Uh, today, they're down more like 5%. Uh, and I think there's a, a rationale for why they're not down 15 or 20%, uh, which I'm happy to get into it. What strikes me as a paradox, uh, Jonathan Litt, is that uh, so many, we, we uh, Evan and I and Grants have our offices at 233 Broadway, the storied, beautiful Woolworth building, one of the first skyscrapers uh, dated, I don't know, 1913, 1914, I forgot the date it went up. But um, before, you know, before the uh, uh, the Great Plague of 2020, uh, the building was full, people, elevators were full, uh, you know, the restaurant and the lot, ditto, ditto, ditto. Now, um, I don't know, Evan, one half maybe of the traffic you see? I, I think citywide, the number is more like one third of people are going back yeah. to the office. No, what's not so great? Uh, being spread out across the country and trying to keep a team on the same page and focused on task. That's why we are huge fans of Coda. Now, with teams working all across the country, if your best work is spread out across documents, spreadsheets, and a stack of workflow tools you have to jump in and out of all day, you need Coda, the doc that brings it all together. 
Now, Coda is endlessly customizable and connected. It adapts to your growing teams and changing strategies, and uh, it is synced. Make an update in the table, and it automatically shows up everywhere. No more relying on copy and paste to keep linchpin projects current. Your team can operate on the same information and collaborate the same way we all want to quickly and efficiently. So with Coda, you can solve for just about anything. And right now, you can get started having your team all working together on the same page for free. Head over to coda.io slash yield. That's C-O-D-A dot I-O to get started for free. Coda.io slash yield. Uh, it would seem to the layman, Jonathan, and I, ladies and gentlemen, we are speaking to a, a recurrent winner of the uh, top analyst prize at uh, Institutional Investor Magazine and others. Um, uh, it seems to the layman, Jonathan, that the physical properties themselves, we'll, we'll get to the stocks in a moment, but they ought to be trading lower, um, given the risk that uh, what uh, appeared to be the uh, uh, something temporary uh, having to do with the coronavirus is now going to... Uh, become, uh, this is all rather trite, but a a permanent change in the way people uh, live and work. In which case, the earning power of these buildings is diminished, in which case the taxing yield on them is diminished. And I, I, don't, I don't see these changes in, the, in the, what little I know about the quotations of actual buildings or in the securities of the cities that are looking down the barrels of a shotgun of much lower <laughs> a property tax to take. What, 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 can you help us understand? Yeah, I, I will have to say I am uh, not very popular among uh, the owners of office buildings, and in particular in Manhattan. Uh, but if you remember, it was a pretty scary time in, in March 20. Is we were all trying to figure out what this pandemic meant. It's you know we don't have a lot of time in your business and my business to think about what it means for ourselves and our families, and we're immediately required to make um, investment decisions and commentary on what it means for uh, the investment community. And I remember listening to Larry Fink from BlackRock and Gorman from Morgan Stanley, and they remarked how incredibly well the organization was operating with the sales force working from home. And, you know, I looked at my partners after those comments and I said, New York office is going to have a major problem (laughs) whenever we get to the other side of it. And we put together a white paper, uh, which you can find on our website, Atlanta Buildings, in May of 20. And we said, there's an existential hurricane that's going to impact office. And in particular, New York office and older class B and C buildings, such as the Empire State Building. And there is a company called Empire State that owns uh, the Empire State Building, um, where you have much smaller tenants, easier to work from home, uh, and it's going to be quite problematic. And we sort of put our finger in the air and said, if people come to work one less day a week, that's 20% less people in a building, right, post-pandemic. And that could lead to 20% higher vacancy rates. And that starts getting into your part of the world from my part of the world. I'm an equity guy. Once you get to 20% vacancy rate on top of what we had pre-pandemic, you start getting defaults on the underlying uh, mortgages and bonds that people have in these, that they borrowed against these buildings. Um, so equity gets wiped out and now you start getting into the bonds. We're not there yet because you know there's long-term leases, the tenants are healthy, they're paying the rent. But as those rents are coming up, we're seeing that the amount of space that's being leased is falling quite dramatically. Um, and we don't know the end of the story yet, because uh, as Evan said, 
Um, it's about a third of people are back in the office. Uh, and I don't know what regularity that is. And places like Manhattan are, are really going to struggle. Um, but with, with everything that comes out of the unintended consequences of a pandemic on a, a market like Manhattan office, there are beneficiaries as well, uh, which I can talk about. But we do think the Manhattan office and office generally is likely to be challenged in terms of valuations and possible loan defaults for those that you know have, have too much debt on their property. I'd love to get into the winners, but just in terms of losers, prior to COVID, gateway cities like San Francisco and New York had some of the highest valuations and therefore the lowest cap rates due to the idea that these cities have limited room to expand and they've historically had strong demand for space. I remember like class A office in New York used to be like in the low 3% cap range, which equates to kind of like a 30 times earnings multiple or higher. Um, how, how bad do you think the decline in gateway city demand and kind of valuations are going to be? And over what period of time do you think this plays out? Well, so, you know, before the pandemic, we were a bit concerned about office because really the only net lease, uh, lessor, or lessee of office space was the co-working tenants like WeWork. So if you looked at the net absorption in a Manhattan, if it weren't for WeWork, we would have seen occupancy state rates rising pre-pandemic. As we did more work on this before the pandemic and subsequent to the pandemic, if you looked around the country, markets like New York and San Francisco and Dallas, we're seeing net migrations of population out of the cities, or declining growth or net migration out. And that's really a big demographic pig in the python. That's the millennials. We've all read about it now, but the millennials are at a stage of their life where, you know, living in a small apartment in a, in a major city is not really conducive to having one, two, three children. And they're at that point where that's the lifestyle they want. They started moving to the burbs. And obviously, the pandemic materially accelerated that. So we had concerns about office pre-pandemic, more demographic related. And, you know, that is a more substantial problem now that people can, can work from home and work from remote locations. Jonathan, could you compare the uh, perhaps existential problem in the office market with what has happened over the course of many years with shopping centers? Um, I remember when, um, when Amazon became a thing. It became a thing, as uh, Marty Hale was reminding us just the other day, it became a thing in cycles. Uh, the stock uh, went to the moon, then uh, returned to earth with a thud. And so the, the, the movement to um, away from physical retailing was not something that occurred overnight over the course of 15, not 15, 20 years. And the timeline of the valuation of shopping malls, um, might that uh, provide a, 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 a guide or a, a model for uh, the world's coming to terms with the new economics of, of, of work from home? Yeah, I think, you know, you bring up a good point because there's the malls and there's shopping centers. And, you know, prior to the pandemic, tenants uh, were, many tenants that were in the mall, the department stores, they were being adversely impacted by e-commerce. And so we had too many malls, 2,000 malls in America. Uh, and that's been rapidly shrinking, and the malls have been a very tough place for investing. Shopping centers are also overbuilt, but we really haven't seen the major adverse impacts from e-commerce the way we did on the mall business. And frankly, in the pandemic, I, you know, I, was, I was most worried about the office, but I was also concerned that those people who resisted, uh, either because um, you know, they weren't that adept to technology or because they liked to shop, 
were forced to stop online. And I thought that was going to accelerate the demise of the mall and of the traditional shopping center. And really, much to my surprise, two years after March 20, what we found was once the economy started reopening, people were going back to the mall. People were going back to shopping centers. We have all the people counter information. And people that like to shop in person are shopping in person. They might be buying less per visit, or there might be this omni-channel. They're you know, buying, you know, on the computer and picking it up online or returning it. But it's really, you know, the people like to do it, they do it. And so the fallout hasn't been as bad as I would have anticipated as a result of the greater adoption of e-commerce. And remarkably, and particularly in the shopping center business, it's held up very well. Now, we had a big flux. We had a lot of retailers that went out of business. They closed a lot of stores. So the remaining retailers are healthier. Uh, but, you know, occupancies have bounced back in, in the shopping centers. Occupancies have bounced back in the malls. And it's proven much more resilient than I would have thought of. And, you know, I totally agree with you. I would have thought it would have been much more of a bloodbath and that e-commerce, you know, this would have sealed the fate of traditional shopping centers and malls. But it, it really has not had as much of an impact as I would have thought. I think it will at some point, but we're just not seeing it yet. You, you talked a little bit about how interest rates are impacting building valuations. How is inflation, in fact, impacting real estate? On the one side, I'd imagine you would get higher revenues because, you know, when your lease renews, you could actually reprice it. Or some leases have, C, um, you know, CPI uh, ratchets within their own lease agreements. But even looking at that, I know that a lot of um, lease agreements actually have CPI caps and they're well below kind of the 7.9% we saw in May. At the flip side, though, inflation also makes it more expensive to repair buildings. And CapEx is a major cost for keeping a building refreshed and, you know, desirable for tenants to keep coming in and uh, renewing leases. It, you know, it's a good question. And, you know, I'm sure you both, Jim and Evan, remember that at least for me, it was the first time I had to deal with it. 1994, when the Fed started tightening, um, I was just new on the sell side covering the publicly traded REIT space uh, and the stocks were getting, uh, REITs were getting destroyed. And there was this thought that REITs are bonds, rates go up. REITs should go down and real estate values should go down. And they did in 94. What we found was REITs aren't bonds, right? Cash flows go up uh, and um, you know, a bond value goes down. Your coupon is never going to change. But in a REIT, you, know, you can still raise the dividend and see your cash flow go up in an inflationary environment. In fact, we've now looked back at the periods since 1994 and I'm going to say, I'm just looking at my screen, there's probably you know, 15 of these periods when rates have gone up more than 100 basis points. You're going to have a bad knee-jerk reaction where the stocks do quite poorly. But then when you look out 12 months, 24 months, the REITs do quite well, and they often do better than the S&P 500. Now, this is the end of the 40-year bull market and bonds, and we're going to be at 5 or 6% 10 years. And, you know, I think all bets are off for investments, uh, frankly. Uh, I think everything is going to be adversely impacted, but you know I'll stick to to what I know, which is the REITs. You know when you think about REITs, and and we actually think they're a great place to be in an inflationary environment. And we put a piece out maybe a month or so ago. Not and as we titled it, not all real estate is an inflation hedge. We already talked about New York office. You're not going to get bailed out there. Um, you're going to have negative pricing power. You're going to have probably declining earnings and inflation is going to eat you alive because your operating costs are going to go up. And like you said, Evan, the cost to maintain those that building is going to go up. But when you look at other sectors of the uh, real estate space, 
that have very high margins, much higher margins than the S&P 500, and pretty low CapEx because you know you don't have to rebuild, uh, replace elevators and roofs and rebuild the space every five years when a tenant leaves, and you have a good supply-demand occasion, strong demand, limited supply, you're going to get inflation protected. Um, and so if you look at, let's say, warehouses today, warehouses are on enormous demand because of uh, the growth of e-commerce. They're pretty simple buildings, right? It's like four walls and a roof. Uh, there's no CapEx, right? I mean, you can own that thing for 20 years and you don't have to put a lot of money into it. The margins are enormous because there's no operating costs other than real estate taxes and you know, some insurance. And right now, rents are going up more than 10% a year. So we think that uh, sectors like warehouse, uh, which are in high demand, not enough supply, sectors like single family homes for rent, and there's more to unravel there. Um, lab space, where we're doing all the research into vaccines and cancer cures, et cetera. Apartments, you're going to have really strong inflation head characteristics because they have high operating margins, relatively low expenses that you know, aren't going to eat you alive, and very low, relatively low CapEx compared to office and mall uh, hotels, which are much more expensive to maintain. So I don't think you could paint it with one brush. But you do have to be very careful because you're going to see your value decline in certain parts of real estate and you're going to see a really good inflation hedge in other parts of real estate. That's very helpful. In, in terms of like apartments, though, is, is apartment an asset class that you're bullish on across the whole country or are you avoiding gateway cities like New York, which have seen people move out? You know, Manhattan is fascinating and, and we did avoid Manhattan and, and still don't have much exposure to Manhattan within the apartment space because of the sort of the big demographic challenge. But uh, the Manhattan apartment rental market is very strong right now. Uh, and I can test to that through, you know, my role is, you know, looking at markets like that. And I can attest to that. My son's in college in the city and every year we're renewing his rent and it's going up quite a bit. Uh, That's what he says. That's what he says, John. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, but we are seeing, you know, around the country, uh, that the apartment REITs are pushing rents 10% uh, on average, at least the companies that we're investing in, uh, are pushing rents 10% year over year. This is the second year they've done that. And so there's very strong demand. And, and, and it could be the byproduct of it, of what you're saying, which is those people are coming out of the cities uh, and the first stop is in an apartment and the next stop is going to be in a home. And what's fascinating, I just want to digress here because I kind of opened this can of worms. So there's a whole new asset class available for investors, which is to invest in a portfolio of single family homes, as opposed to you know people traditionally buying their homes. And it's been really red hot since I'm going to say June of 2020, with people going into the homes, accelerating the plan to you know move out of the cities and start families. And they want to rent. They want to rent either because they don't have the down payment or they want to rent because uh, they need the flexibility for their job or the school district, whatever the case may be. What's fascinating is we're thinking about it today, the cost of owning a home between price depreciation and the rise in mortgage interest rates, the cost, you know, that's checked after right every month is up 30 or 40% over what it was pre-pandemic. Uh, and, and because the value of the home is up so much, the ability to make the deposit has now become also harder. And the option to rent your home is, more attractive. We now have institutional owners that are keeping these assets uh, in a condition and marking them in a way uh, which is much more attractive to somebody who might otherwise not want to rent uh, a home from you know another individual. And uh, so this this business is being institutionalized and also seeing uh, you know just tremendous rent growth 
uh, in the current environment. And, and it's still affordable compared to buying a home. What uh, income vehicles especially strike you as desirable? I'm biased towards this inflation hedge protection. So I would be in, and I mentioned it briefly, warehouse, single family for rent, lab space, apartments. The traditional investment ve- uh, income vehicles in the public space being the net lease REITs. So this is where you buy a Walgreens, you know, let's think about a freestanding pad at a shopping center, uh, five or 10,000 feet, 20 year lease to Walgreens, great credit. It's basically a bond. Um, they're going to struggle in valuation. They're going to have a real impairment to valuation. Um, even though you're going to get a good income, let's say a four or 5% dividend yield, um, you're going to have an erosion of value because that credit tenant uh, and that long-term lease uh, is not seeing rent growth that's going to keep up with inflation. So I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to go buy the net lease REITs because you know it's a good place to get income. It's got a higher dividend yield. And I think that's, that's going to be problematic. Uh, and I think that you're going to see that the value of what you own is going to be under pressure as rates go up. And uh, that income will be illusory because of what you're losing on the other side, which is the value of, of the investment. Jonathan, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago that uh, a, a gentle rise in inflation, uh, uh, say if the 7%, 7.9 or 8%, whatever it's going to be next week, if, if that dwindles to uh, uh, 5, 3, 4, whatever, that is one thing. But if the inflation proves persistent and if it persists uh, 5 and 6%, it's something very different. Can you help us understand what exactly is the crossover point that makes inflation um, more or less benign and the other side makes it more or less toxic? So I, I think it's, um, it's, it's a similar answer. I think it's going to be a problem for those, uh, the, the real estate that does not have pricing power uh, because there's too much supply and there's weak demand. So it could be the net lease, could be shopping centers, shopping malls, office buildings, um, I think are really going to be challenged. But when you get into a category where the demand today is so far outstripping the supply, in order for new supply to come online and um, uh, be a party pooper, uh, for lack of a better word, you need rents to go up a lot because your, con- your, your land costs, your construction costs, your labor costs to build, everything is going up so much that it's going to have this effect of keeping, keeping supply depressed until rents go up enough to justify new construction. So you know, in those sectors, again, the ones that I talked about, warehouse, apartment, single family for rent, uh, lab space, I like that equation. I don't think inflation is going to eat us alive because we're not going to get over building. What, what typically happens in um, a Fed tightening cycle is publicly traded REITs do quite well in the tightening cycle. And they, they tend to outperform uh, because there's, there's a lot of growth and inflation, whatever. Um, but when the wheels come off of real estate is when the Fed's done. Demand's falling. Supply is typically peaking. Uh, and the capital markets then become tight. And if we look back at when we've had some very bad public and private real estate markets, it's typically at the end of the Fed uh, cycle. And Uh, Based on what I'm seeing today, I'm not seeing peak supply in any property type. Uh, And so I don't see it yet. But if we do get the kind of rent growth that's going to bring on supply, then I do think we're going to have to worry about um, what happens once the Fed is successful 
at tightening lending to real estate and reducing the demand for real estate because that supply will probably be elevated. Uh, Jonathan, some of our readers I know are interested in mortgage REITs. Any thoughts there? I think they're problematic, uh, particularly the residential mortgage REITs. Uh, I think that you're going to see um, a much slower pace of refinancing. And, um, uh, you know, to the extent that you were counting on refinancing, you're now going to be stuck with lower coupon debt because the mortgage rates that people took out are below what they'd have to replace it with today. Uh, and I think the book values of the mortgage portfolios are going to be co- continue to come down. They try to hedge against interest rates and spreads, uh, but we've already seen about a 10 to 15% decline in book values with the move in rates. They, they pay very big yields, you know, that's like a 10% yield. But I do think the book values will come down and at some point those yields are going to come under pressure as well. Um, you know, the, the management teams have gotten much more sophisticated and they're trying to minimize these impacts. But, you know, at the end of the day, they do own portfolios and mortgages. And I think it's going to be challenging. At the beginning of our conversation, you said you think there might be a slow moving balance sheet problem for some troubled real estate classes. And you seem to imply that New York real estate, uh, New York office might be one of them. And just looking at kind of New York office REITs, they seem to have leverage of like, you know, I want to say six to 10 times uh, net debt to EBITDA. And they would tell you like, you know, years prior that that was prudent because, you know, they may be borrowing 50 or 60% of a building's value. But if that value is coming down and the income that building produces is going down, how does this play out? And over what time frame do you expect problems to arise? You know, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, and we think about it and, you know, I, I would say that there's probably more highly levered buyers of Manhattan office that are in the private market than that are in the public market. The REITs are generally disciplined and live in that 30 to 50% leverage level. Obviously, when values go down, the leverage level goes up, not because it was intentional, but because the unintended consequence of the value of the real estate going down. But I think where we're going to have the issues, and they'll probably show up in the CMBS market, is like we saw in the mall. Uh, you know, Carl Icahn famously had that short on the indexes that were heavy in mall is these CMBS portfolios, which tend to have the higher levered um, collateral uh, in in the New York office market and San Francisco and Los Angeles. Um, I think that's where the problems are going to emerge more so it, that, <clears throat> than in the public REIT. I, I would be very surprised to see the public REIT defaulting on mortgages like across the board in the office space. Uh, I think that um, we're going to see private borrowers who took on much more leverage uh, really struggling. Well, this is terrific. Um, thank you, Indeed. Indeed? Yeah. Indeed is when you are ready to take your business to the next level, but you'll need the right team to make it happen. Indeed makes it easier to hire and to build a team with the right skills to make your dreams a reality. If you're hiring, you need Indeed, because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can get attract interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes or Indeed with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. So Indeed makes it easy to hire great talent, according to Comscore. Indeed is the number one job site worldwide. 
and indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash grant. Offer valid through April 30th. Go to Indeed.com slash grant to claim your $75 credit before April 30th. That's Indeed.com slash grant. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Jonathan, is there anything you'd like to say that we haven't asked? Um, or do you want to get want to get some lunch? <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a big question, uh, you know. But you know, we did sort of go out of our way because you know, again, since 1994, I've been getting this question about you know, salaries and rates go up, uh, and you know, that hasn't worked. Now, we also haven't had a reversal of the 40-year bull market and bonds. And if this is in fact the reversal of that, um, valuations are uh, going to be impacted, and they're going to be impacted of all investment opportunities. And, you know, I'd really encourage, I mean, I said a lot of it today, I'd encourage you to, you know, look at our piece on why not all real estate is an inflation hedge, which implies that certain real estate is. One exercise we just did for our investors this quarter, we put it out earlier this week, was we said, you know, if you look at a warehouse company today, and I, and I talked to you about why I thought warehouse makes sense, uh, and this one in particular, there's 40% growth in its income. If you just roll all the rents to market where they were at the end of last year. So it looks like a super low cap rate on in place rent of about 3%. But if you roll the whole portfolio to market, it's more like a 4.6 cap rate. And we said, okay, well, is that reasonable in the current uh, financing environment and or the financing environment we might have 12 months from now uh, if the Fed does you know, the, the, the 95 billion and the 300 basis points increase? Uh, and you know, we don't know exactly where financing will be. I think the financing market for real estate has already largely priced that in. And so we said, well, where did transactions happen pre-pandemic when financing costs for real estate was about where uh, they are today? Um, and would that 4.6 cap rate be expensive or cheap or fair? And I would say, you know, going back and looking, we haven't been involved in a couple of large uh, warehouse transactions. It's in the zone of fair. So bargain basement, not super elevated. Plus it has the inflation hedge characteristics. And so we think that's okay. Again, we did the same exercise for net lease and for office and they are problematic. That would, that would be my last point to make good, on where good. we see this. Well, this has been terrific. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us. Evan, um, I will see you around the campus. Henry, thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Jim Grant on behalf of Grant's Interest Rate Observer.